Hello, and welcome to the Bite Size Bible Study Podcast. I'm your host, Phil Shiroki, and today we are going to look at Exodus chapter 27 as we continue our look at the Law of Moses, also known as the Mosaic Law. So far, we have started again in, we actually technically started in Exodus 19, but, um, the law really begins to unfold and is really given to Moses by God um, in Exodus 20, where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. And then from there, he gives Moses his instruction on um, basically many things up to this point so far. Exodus 26 being our most recent episode, where God instructed Moses on how to build the tabernacle that would include, um, you know, basically the holy place the um most holy place behind that place where god himself wanted to dwell with his people because that's the amazing god we serve he's intimate he loves us he wants to be part of every area of our lives he wants to be not only our savior but lord of our lives so when we give our life to jesus christ we become his slaves, we become his bond servants, we become his ambassadors, we become his living sacrifices and his witnesses on this earth. We are part of the kingdom of God on the earth, alive and active right now. So a lot of that is on the spiritual side, but life, a lot of life is on the spiritual side. It's just when we're in the flesh, we're too foolish to realize and recognize we have no discernment or understanding. It's basically like a blind person going through life, which if you don't have Jesus Christ, then you are spiritually blind. You're bound to sin. You're bound to death and you're headed right towards hell. But God's redemptive work is amazing what he did through Jesus and in his grace and his mercy. He sent his first fruits, his son, to be our substitute for all of the punishment we deserve for the sins that we commit. That yes, if you're not a Christian, if you're out of the God, if if you are away from the Lord, you are a sinner. You are, um, again, you're headed to hell. I don't say that joyfully, but I say that because... Jesus spoke the most about hell out of everyone in the Bible for good reason. Because there is an eternal damnation that is faced and it is going to be absolutely horrific. And I don't want to see one person I know or anyone, you know, ever headed there. If, If there's anything I could do, anything I can share... If there's any godly wisdom he can give me, if there's any influence of the Holy Spirit that he can push me to share who he is with anyone that, um, you know, he pushes me to do that with. There's certain people that recently God has really pushed me and, you know, sometimes, you know, randomly I will feel compelled to reach out to somebody and just start a conversation and, You know, sometimes I know I can broadside people and just really hit them with the truth, if you will, but it's important. It's because I care for you, I love you, and I don't want you 
to ever say that no one told me when you're facing the Lord because after you die if you die in your sin and unrepented sin and as a sinner then you're going to go to a place called Sheol you're going to be held there until the resurrections and then once you are standing before Jesus Christ at the great white throne judgment and he opens up those books of everything you ever did in your life because that's what you will be judged on Christians, we will be judged according to what we did with what God gave us. What did God give us? He gave us the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are responsible to convey this message as the Holy Spirit leads us, you know, um, in a in a loving way. Love has to be our first motivation for everything. So that's why it's important to be synced up, if you will, with the Holy Spirit and again we don't use the gospel in a way that is angry upset as a reaction in an argument that that is foolishness that's the flesh but when you hear that still small voice prodding you and pushing you i i hear it and i obey it most of the time these days but there's still times i have a random stranger will be standing in front of me and i'll feel the lord saying talk to them and sometimes it's just, you know, it's hard to open my mouth. I have to be honest. Um, I'm a human being, you know. I, You know, we all have busy schedules. We all have a million things to do. And, you know, uh, just today there was a guy standing in Wawa in, in front of me in line. And he had a hat on that said, Jesus is my boss. And frankly, he didn't exactly look like Jesus was his boss. Not judging the guy, not condemning him. But... Again, it looked like maybe a hat he had just randomly picked up from somewhere. It was just wearing a hat, frankly. But what do I know? I don't know the guy's heart. I don't know anything about it. He could have been backslidden, whatever it may have been. But I did feel, you know, the Lord telling me to say something. But, you know, as we stood there in line and as, you know, it kept moving and moving. And by the time I did finally want to say something, you know, he paid for his stuff and he was out of there. So... Unfortunately, it may have been a missed opportunity for me, but don't ever hesitate because here's the thing. Not only can you bless someone by being used by the Lord to really share the truth with them, but amazingly, God also blesses us when we do that. It builds our faith. You know, it builds our confidence in what God did for us as we share our witness and our testimony. Um, you know, we are all... Even if we are not physically speaking to someone, we are constantly a witness with our lives to being changed and being new creations in Christ. So, you know, part of being that new creation is opening our mouth, is having the faith to say, hey, man, you know, is that true? Is that is that is Jesus really your boss? That's what I wanted to say to the dude. And I know it would have been a real little who knows it could have been. I don't know how it would have went, you know, but again, I don't know. It's a missed opportunity. But, you know, even from that, I can learn because next time it makes me want to go that much more when I hear the Lord saying do that. And I next time, instead of being hesitant, I'll just say, yes, Lord, and I'll do it. You know, um, I, and fortunately, I, I do have my mixed bag of opportunities where I do take the time to talk to people and 
you know, um, listen to that still small voice, but you know, I'm a human being. I'm just like everybody else, you know, I'm learning as I go. And, um, you know, that's God builds our faith. You know, he's our good father. He's not angry. He's not, um, there's no condemnation in Christ. He is, um, he is a loving God. He is our best friend. He calls himself our brother. I mean, how amazing is that? And, um, you know, right now we are seated spiritually in the heavenlies with Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father. How that works, I don't know, but the Bible says it. Just take a look at my episode on dual citizenship I did a little while back. You'll get, I get into a lot more detail there on that specific topic. But um, like I said, we are actually continuing our look at Exodus. Um, you know, we're in Exodus chapter 27 now where we're going to look at the altar of burnt offering, the court of the tabernacle, and the care of the lampstand. So some of these items, you know, the altar, the lampstand, we already, you know, Moses already received some instruction on how to construct those, how to conduct certain ceremonies and rituals with those. But now we're going to get into some finer detail and I'm really enjoying this look at the law because I'm really learning a lot of the ways of the Jewish religion and why they do what they do, you know. Um, It's interesting and it's very um, incredible that to this day, you know, they may not have a temple, they may not exactly be burning offerings like they're instructed to here, but keep your eyes and ears open because there's people looking to build a third temple right now in Israel on the temple mount where the original two temples were and right now if you're paying any attention to the news out of Israel that is a very contested area between the Arabs and the Jews both sides are going back and forth um it was just uh it was just the Jerusalem Day, um, it was basically a celebration on Monday, I believe that's May 31st, where um, that's the birthday of Israel, essentially, and every year they have a, a march where, you know, they just go through the streets and celebrate, but this year, um, some terrorist organizations were not happy that they were going to do that. Um, By the good grace of God, they were protected. There was no violence. There was nothing, no outbursts. Um, There's a lot of threats still right now towards them for doing that from, again, Arab terrorist organizations. But, you know, you know, that that just comes with the territory at this point. Um, Israel, unfortunately, and and the Jewish people are just kind of they've adapted and overcome to having to deal with their, um, you know, their next door neighbors, their Arab brothers who want nothing more than to see them die and just don't want to live in peace. So, you know, the um, IDF, they do a good job of kind of keeping things, keeping order and keeping, um, you know, law, if you will, in that area and not letting things get out of control. Um, But, you know, it's, it's getting very contentious over there day by day. It's really you know, it's, um, I've watched it from a distance for my whole life. You know, there's been, there's been shellings, there's been, um, retaliation, there's been spats back and forth, but, um, you know, these days there's a whole different sort of saber rattling going on over there, especially now that Iran is very close to developing a nuclear weapon. 
no thanks to um, you know the U.S. and its pathetic leadership, as well as um, you know other countries as well not standing up to certain countries in the Middle East that frankly. Iran has no business having a, a nuclear weapon, and the fact that they have, you know, they're all but there at this point is just unreal. You know, they have no regard for the West. They don't respect the West for good reason. The West gives no one anything to respect at this point. The West is very disrespectable, if that's even a word. But um, it, it, it's you know, the West is a joke, and that's why Russia thumbs its nose at the West. That's why China's thumbing its nose at the West and about to attack attack uh, Taiwan, because you know it's empty words, it's empty threats. You know we're sitting here letting Ukraine fight a proxy. We're fighting a proxy war through the Ukrainian army with Russia right now. You know it's just a joke. It's really hey. Here's the thing. God thankfully is in control. This is all part of His divine plan. And it has to get worse before it can get better. And this poor leadership, these wars need to happen. And they will just get worse. The violence will increase, you know. The the um, It's going to get to a point where the world is going to be a very unpeaceful, unrestful place. Very tumultuous. And we see it domestically. We see it internationally. And it's going to get to a point where... The world is going to call for peace. And guess who's going to step right up to the scene at that time? That's right. The man of perdition. The Antichrist. Um, And that is when he is going to step into power and begin his his, um, reign. But he's going to... I think it's going to be a subtle process. I think whoever this Antichrist is, I do believe he's alive right now. I don't know if he's currently in any governmental positions in Europe, for example. You know, people have their um, conjecture and their thoughts on it. I'm not going to mention anybody in particular because I think that's kind of a waste of time. Um, frankly, who knows? We don't know. The point, the real fact of the matter is it's coming. It's going to get here eventually. But until it does, thankfully, we have this living word of God. We can look through it. We can understand what's going on from a biblical worldview perspective, which is the most sensible worldview perspective at this point. The world is on its head upside down. It doesn't know what a man is, what a woman is. It doesn't know what to do with uh, anything these days. It's just the, the worldly government leadership is literally flying by the seat of its pants. Its head is spinning. It has no idea how to treat people it has no idea what to do so hey good luck with that i have no faith in any government any world system um and you know i i never will i never did um i was in the military for a short four years i got what i wanted to from the military and i got out and um i have no regrets for that whatsoever um but I'm very glad that it's been over 20 years since I was in the military and I'm very glad I'm out and have no association with it whatsoever because I would never, ever want to be anywhere near any U.S. military or any facility ever again, given the horrible, horrible leadership that is currently, um, well, it's only going to get worse. So 
And that's a crazy thing, too. I mean, we have the strongest military in the world, yet, you know, we just allow ourselves to be weakened, which is, man, it's got to happen. So I guess I just have to accept it. But in any case, let's get into, again, Exodus chapter 27 as we continue our look at the law of Moses. Okay. And like I said, we are going to look today at Exodus chapter 27. So here we go. You shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it and you shall overlay it with bronze. Also, You shall make its pans to receive its ashes and its shovels and its basins and its forks and its fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall make a grate for it, a network of bronze, and on the network you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. You shall put it under the rim of the altar beneath that the network may be midway up the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. The poles shall be put in the rings, and the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar to bear it. You shall make it hollow with boards. As it was shown you on the mountain, so shall they make it. So that's Exodus chapter 27, verses 1 through 8, my spirit-filled life, New King James Version Bible, subtitles that section, the altar of burnt offering. And quickly looking at the note here for that section, it says, the altar was seven and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and four and a half feet tall. The altar was a type of the cross where Christ would offer himself as a pure offering before God on behalf of sinners. Pretty amazing stuff. And um, again, these are um, just explaining the measurements. And um, again, Jesus was our living sac. He was our sacrifice. He was our substitute lamb. He was the ultimate offering for the sins of the world. Again, going back to Jesus fulfilling the law and being that final sacrifice that God required for the sins of the world. Jesus, when he was alive, the way the law exposed the sin of the Jews, Jesus in his actions and in his earthly ministry exposed the sins of the world, which was why he was so hated and despised by many, all of the world, except for a small handful, God's remnant, just like to this very day. There's a small handful, relatively speaking, in the, you know, seven point, I guess it's up to eight, almost, you know, eight billion people on this earth. It's a very small percentage of people that actually have a relationship and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord and call him their savior. You know, I mean, we could even look at, you know, I I won't break numbers down or start to, you know, analyze it that way, but I will say, relatively speaking, again, it's a very small percentage. It's a scary percentage. So um, 
I'd highly encourage you, if you haven't made that decision yet, believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, ask him to be your savior, and he will come into your life and totally transform you in the best ways possible. He will set you free of sin, clean out your closet. He will he will put you on a path of righteousness and turn you into a living sacrifice. It's he's an amazing God and I have no regrets of the path that I've chosen that he called me to to walk with him and in him. So let's pick up at Exodus chapter 27, verse 9. Again, my spiritual life, New King James Version Bible subtitles this section, the court of the tabernacle. You shall also make the court of the tabernacle. For the south side, there shall be hangings for the court made of fine woven linen, 100 cubits long for one side. And its 20 pillars and their 20 sockets shall be bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their bands shall be silver. Likewise, along the length of the north side, there shall be hangings 100 cubits long with its 20 pillars and their 20 sockets of bronze and the hooks of the pillars and their bands of silver. And along the width of the court on the west side shall be hangings of five cubits with their 10 pillars and their 10 sockets. The width of the court on the east side shall be 50 cubits. The hangings on one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. And on the other side shall be hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen, made by a weaver. It shall have four pillars and four sockets. All the pillars around the court shall have bands of silver. Their hooks shall be of silver, and their sockets of bronze. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits, the width 50 throughout, and the height 5 cubits made of fine woven linen and its sockets of bronze all the utensils of the tabernacle for all its service all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze all right so that's again exodus chapter 27 verses 9 through 19 now i'm going to look at the notes here for that section in my spirit filled life new king james version bible where it says the court around the tabernacle was 150 feet long and 75 feet wide and marked the outer limits of the holy precincts. It was a large open air place of sacrifices. Of bronze shows that the farther one got from the most holy, the lesser the value of materials. This symbolized the need to be special to approach God fully. So interesting point there. Again, I mean, good observation and it makes sense, you know, as again, there's different sections to this tabernacle, the most holy having. And I noticed that, too, when it when it was talking about um, just overlaying certain, you know, using bronze, for example, instead of gold, how it was previously described to 
in, in another section to, to make the um, essentially the Ark of the Covenant. Um, but, you know, when as you get further away from the Lord, the building materials decrease in value. And that makes a lot of sense. I mean, God still has his holy special place for his people, the, the Jews and the land of Israel. Um, you know, in the last days, the third temple is going to be built. All of this stuff is going to be reactivated, and they are—they already have the building materials in Israel. There's, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of Jews pushing for this third temple. Literally, they have—I don't know—when you have when the when new construction is about to begin, the first thing you do is draw up the blueprints. Then you get the materials ready. You order the materials, have them delivered, and then the next step is starting to put hammer to nails and put and assembling whatever you're going to do and or brick, you know, mortar to brick, if you will, or mortar to stone, whatever it may be. And they have everything literally stockpiled, ready to go to build this third temple. And like I mentioned, it's going to be it's very contentious right now. But there was a war previously, I believe in the 60s. I believe it was a, a very brief war. I don't want to misquote it because I just read about it. But um, there are still people alive who fought that war for the Temple Mount. And at that time, it was declared property of the Jewish people. But since then, you know, garbage politics, garbage Western politics have tried to influence and push the Jews basically off the Temple Mount. And um you know, if you don't know and don't realize that the Jews and Arabs are like, they are literally brothers fighting. And that's exactly what it is back going back to, um, you know, Abraham, when he um, basically had um, two sons, um, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was an Arab and started the Arab race, essentially. And Isaac started the Jewish race. And that's where this whole thing branched off. And that's why, I mean, there's a spiritual brotherhood between those two groups of people. And that's why they are constantly fighting like family, like brothers. They are fighting over the same space, the same land. They each feel they have claim to it. But, hey, it is what it is. But the Jews are the rightful owners and heirs to that land. And soon enough, the Arabs are going to attack the Jews I believe, and God is going to supernaturally intervene. And I'm not talking just the Palestinian or whatever you want to call them, the, the Arabs that live in Israel. I'm talking about the um, Iran. Um, it's very possible Jordan could get involved. You know, right now the Abraham Accords are a very political thing, but they've really been stalled since um, the U.S. leadership has changed over in 2020. Um, you know, it's a lot of lip service with all them. They're doing nothing to actually, you know, really push them and, and promote them. You know, when they were originally began with the previous administration, you know, they got stuff done pretty quickly and swiftly. But, you know, I, I don't hear much about them these days. I just read something today, actually, about them trying to restart the, uh, you know, Abraham Accords with other nations. But, you know, that's really not the point. What the point, the bigger point is that, um, you know, the Jews and the Arabs are going to have a, a fight very soon, a, a war, and it's going to be pretty bloody, pretty ugly. Um, you know, the Israel has some of the most sophisticated military technology in the world. 
they're some of the most intelligent people in the world. They have, you know, science, they're just on another level when it comes to most other countries, especially in that area of the world. Um, they're, they're wealthy, they're rich and, you know, people want to come and, you know, take <laughs> like thieves and robbers and, and people that steal do, they just want to come and, you know, just take away what successful people have essentially, which, you know, that's just, um, you know, that's a plan of Satan. That's a satanic evil way to approach things. And that's exactly, you know, what, what, what's coming essentially. Um, you know, Iran has vowed for years, for decades that they will not wipe Israel off the map. And so have other countries over there. So it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, Israel, um, you know, ends up in a war pretty soon. You know, you have um, Russia, who's changed their posture a lot towards Israel recently since Russia attacked Ukraine. And now that Israel is helping Ukraine fight this proxy war, you know, um, you know, Russia is not stupid. They're keeping very close tabs and notes as to everything that's going on right now but with the u.s with the west with um every nation that's helping ukraine and they they have a long memory they don't forget very easily so don't be surprised and china is just sitting there just watching it all and they're just waiting for their moment to pounce so they can go into taiwan and then reclaim that land because they feel like that's their rightful um territory essentially and um you know, again, wars and rumors of wars. It's all around us and in front of us. Yet, hey, you got a lot of people that are just, well, a majority of people have no clue what's actually going on. But getting back to my original point, the spiritual reality of everything going on is very recognizable to those of us that have eyes to see, ears to hear, spiritual discernment, and most importantly, we simply look into the word of the living word of God and see that this is all prophesied. This is all predicted. And if you really have a real confidence and knowledge in the word, you won't be scared. You won't hesitate. You won't fret because you know, first off, we know who wins in the end. And secondly, you know, we know why these things are happening. When you have understanding of situations it makes it that much easier to stomach. We may not like it. We may not want it to happen. No, I, believe me, I don't want any any of this to happen. But we live in an evil, fallen world. There's a lot of evil, fallen people in very high places and very powerful places in this world. And ultimately, there's going to be one that rises to the apex of all the evil governments and is going to be the one who brings the peace that the world's going to desire and crave once that powder keg in the Middle East starts to really explode. I don't believe it's going to be nuclear necessarily, but who knows? You know, when we think of nuclear bombs, we think of World War II, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, where the U.S. bombed Japan, and it was great destruction and death, which is horrible. But these days, they have more sophisticated nuclear weapons. They have tactical nukes, they're called, for example, where, you know, you can really precisely damage a country in certain areas and a certain part of the country without having the mass, um, believe me, there's going to be mass death and devastation. 
So who knows? I mean, I don't want to speak too soon, but I, I do think it's going to be, if it goes nuclear, it's, um, it's not going to be the, uh, you know, the, um, end world scenario, as weird as it sounds yet, but it's going to lead up to it. And once that happens, that's when I believe the antichrist man of perdition, the evil one is actually going to step up and be the one who negotiates and brokers this peace deal between Israel and its neighbors, enemies, etc. So keep an eye out for that. This is nothing I'm saying on my own. I'm no prophet, but I study this word. I listen to many sermons. I study many books. And um, and it's all headed that way. I'm 42 years old. Over the course of my life alone, this, <laughs> the way the world has changed. And, and look, everybody, I know every generation, you know, when you go from 20 to when you're 80, it changes a lot. But the changes I've seen over just the past 20 years, two decades, is absolutely mind-numbing. The changes over the past couple years is mind-numbing. The way people are so susceptible to and open to trying to let the government, uh, the, the evil governments that rule this world, you got to realize people that want that kind of power are evil people. Now, not everybody is, not all, not all people are evil in government. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is a lot of people are, and they take advantage of their power and their you know, situation, they, they have very inflated egos and, um, you know, they, they all get together and conspire to keep that power one way or another. And it's right in front of us. It's, it's really incredible how things have changed. And again, how open people are and, and how they, they're so susceptible to thinking the government is somehow going to save them and save the world. It's a scary, scary thought. I, I want Jesus to come and save the world. That, that's what I want. I, I No thanks with this, um, you know, world government stuff. But, all right, <clears throat> let's finish up our look at Exodus 27. We're going to look at um, verses 20 and 21, where, again, my spirit full life, uh, New King James Version Bible, subtitles the section, The Care of the Lampstand. And you shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually. In the tabernacle of meeting, outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. So looking at the notes for that section, it says, the oil to be burned in the lamp's lamp tended by Aaron and his sons was symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Beaten olive oil, which was the best, was used in the tabernacle. To obtain the oil, olives were gently pounded in a bowl and the oil was extracted from the pulp. The tabernacle of meeting here is an alternate name for the tabernacle. So... That right there concludes Exodus chapter 27. But before I wrap that up, and that's incredible too, just knowing, you know, the, the Holy Spirit is alive and burning and living inside of each and every one of us as believers. So that, again, uh, 
the pictures and the the um, the literal things that we're looking at now in the law, and I'm quickly learning and realizing why God wanted me to go through this, is because the so much of it is symbolic and ties into exactly what we live today. But the whole reality is different. Again, we're under the new covenant, but as we look at this. We see that, you know, the Holy Spirit, for example, is alive in us, burning. It's that fire. It's that a lot. It's that unquenchable spirit of God that is in each and every one of us as believers. And that's why we can never underestimate the power that's given to us by God to, again, have the chains of sin broken and to walk the path that he gives each and every one of us and to live righteous lives, holy lives as living sacrifices to him. Like anything else, you get out what you put in, you know, do you want that? Well, God will give it to you. If you want to just be in the flesh and dead, well, sure, you're, you're, you're saved. But on that day of judgment that I mentioned earlier, you're going to be, you know, basically standing there with not much to show for what God gave you. You And Jesus spoke parables about this. We just looked at one in, um, there's, there's one in Luke. There's another, there's several where he speaks about giving his disciples, or he speaks parables about basically giving um, workers or people he trusted, um, you know, managers, if you will, um, you know, items or, or literal, you know, talons, or um, I think they were called minas uh, in one of the parables. But in any case, Jesus does address this and spoke several parables about what are you going to do with what I give you on this earth? And it's not talking about anything materialistic. Jesus is talking about spiritual things, like always in the parables. And he's talking about, I gave you this. I gave you the gospel. I gave you the truth. I gave you my living word. I gave you my Holy Spirit. What did you do with it on the earth? Did you just blend in with the world and compromise and just be a, you know, a um, well, somebody that you wouldn't even know you were saved unless, uh, well, I don't even know. I mean, there there are some. There's a lot of dead people walking around these days that uh, call themselves Christians, but you know, the the way they live and the way they they act, and um, frankly, the their beliefs. Uh, it's they're gonna be they're gonna. Here's the thing about here's a great thing about that white throne judgment. Again, we're all going to be judged based upon what we did on this earth. So unsaved sinners are going to be judged based on their sins. And they're going to be cast into hell forever and ever. But Christians are going to be judged again based on what did we do with the gospel, with the truth, with what God gave us. Did we listen to that still small voice? Did we have that conversation? Was our faith built up? Did we learn from our mistakes and not repeat them over and over? You know, these are these are the things that we're going to answer for when we are judged. Yes, we'll make it to heaven, but, and we don't do this for any reward. I don't do this for crowns. I don't do this for anything. I do this purely out of love for people and a love for the word of God. I love reading the word of God. I love sharing it with people. And frankly, this is one of the best ways I know how to do it because um, I'm not the most social person. I'm not a social butterfly these days. I'm frankly um, a real 
you know, I'm a real quiet kind of humble guy uh, for the most part. So, you know, it's something that this is a way for me to get out a lot of what God shows me and um, share it with others. Um, but like I said, nothing beats that one on one interaction with people as well, especially when the Lord's leading us and leading me to do that. It's my pleasure to obey the Lord and, you know, open my mouth and, you know, give my time, give my witness, give my skills, whatever it may be to serving the Lord and, um, you know, being one of his children, being one of his servants, being his slave and bondservant. It's an honor. It's an absolute pleasure. And I'm very glad that I can do that because... You know, I wasted many years of my life just trying to live for myself in dead sin. And it was horrible, absolutely empty. And I really don't ever want to go back to that. And by the grace of God, I never will. So before we finish up this look at Exodus 27, let's look at a kingdom dynamic section here for this actually addresses Exodus 27, 1 through Exodus chapter 28, 43. It basically goes all through 27 and 28, but I'm going to read this now. Maybe I'll address it again and maybe it'll be a little more fleshed out after we look at 28 in our next episode. But I did want to look at this. Um, again, Kingdom Dynamics sections are just, you know, just expansion on some ideas that are being conveyed in the specific um, parts of the Bible in my Spiritual Life, New King James Version Bible. And um, again, this one is uh, addressing. Basically, Exodus chapters 27 and 28. This is called Taking Charge, Leader Traits. God called Moses with a direct command to take charge. One, you shall command. The overseer, excuse me, you shall command. The overseer must step up. Sorry, there's some confusing um, side notes within this paragraph, and I'm trying to work through as we do this. So give me a second. Um, again, one, you shall command. The overseer must step in and take charge anytime he feels his delegated leader is moving in the wrong direction or confusion is beginning to find entrance. Two, you shall bring close. At times, the leader lends by merely putting an arm around his subordinate's shoulder to affirm, identify with, or encourage. Three, you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans, the leaders. The literal statement is, speak to the wise in heart. Occasionally, in order to avoid misunderstanding, an overseer needs to take charge by directly addressing the entire cadre of the workers rather than by speaking through delegated leadership. The wise leader knows when to let the reins of authority hang slack that his delegate, delegates may learn, but he should not relinquish full control until God tells him to do so. So, you know, we see that all over, especially where it says, you know, sometimes, um, the leader, the, the head, head guy, if you will. So, you know, when I guess I'll just break it down to a sports team because I know that pretty well. And most people do, but for example, professional football teams have a head coach, then they have offensive coordinators, defensive coordinators, and then they have a bunch of coaches that coach each position. So, you know, there's a hierarchy there, if you will, 
And a majority of the time, those teammates are spending time with each other. So you have the quarterbacks are together. You have the wide receivers. You have the running backs. Then on the defense, you have the defensive line. You have the cornerbacks. You have the safeties. Um, you have all these, the linebackers, you have all these different positions that spend a lot of time together. And it makes sense because, you know, as you spend time with smaller groups, you know, iron kind of sharpens iron. You can learn from each other on in very close proximity and share ideas and share, you know, experience, et cetera. But, you know, you know, something serious and you know, it's a big deal when the head coach calls a meeting for the entire team. That's where the head coach comes in and says, all right, this is what has to get done. This is how we're going to do it, blah, blah, blah. Same idea with leadership in companies, for example. You know, you have your CEOs. Then you have your mid-level managers. You have your managers. Then you have your workers. There's always a hierarchy. And same idea, same principle. You have, you know, all the different subsections of a company, all the different different um, you know, divisions, whatever they may be. But then you have when the CEO draws everybody together and speaks, everybody listens because he's not, <laughs> because he's the top guy. He, he knows he may, he has final say in everything that goes on in the company for good reason. And that's good leadership. So you know, sometimes good leaders, you know, they get there for a reason and they need to have these traits, successful organizations, churches, groups, teams, whatever they may be, always have good leadership. And on the flip side, on the other side of the coin, organizations that fail, churches that fail, teams that are bad, usually have bad leadership. There's a direct correlation there. So, um, again, it's very important that when God puts us in control and in charge of whatever it may be, that one, we do it as well as we possibly can, realizing that we're doing it for God. And two, that we're wise enough to, you know, um, know when to step up and address everyone. And we have the right people under us to disseminate information and disseminate our leadership and what we want done throughout the organization. Um, quickly, I'll end with this. Uh, my, my children and I always talk about, you know, we have great discussions about all kinds of things, but sometimes we bring up um, one guy we talk about sometimes is Elon Musk. And the reason why we talk about him is just, it's interesting. We, and typically it comes up with, um, we'll see like a Tesla on the road and then, We'll start talking about just, you know, just Tesla cars, but then we'll talk about Musk sometimes will come up, the, you know, the, the CEO of that company, but he's also the CEO of several other companies. He's a CEO of a company called Neuralink, which people aren't very familiar with. He's a comp uh, CEO of a company called SpaceX, and he's a CEO of, I believe he's going to buy Twitter soon. So one thing that I tell my kids and one thing you can look into with Musk and why he's so successful and why he's the richest man in the world at this point is because he is smart enough to know that he doesn't know everything, but he's smart enough to hire the right people in each one of those fields. So Musk probably doesn't know much about the human brain, for example, 
But you better believe he has a bunch of really smart dudes working at Neuralink that do know much about the brain and how to create whatever he's creating over there. Same thing with SpaceX. Musk, Musk, he probably likes Star Wars and Star Trek, but he doesn't know much about the scientific, um, you know, the, the intricacies that come along with with having a company that can literally build rockets and send them into space. But he has the right people in the right places. Same thing with Tesla. Same thing with Twitter coming up, you know. So my point is Musk is smart enough and humble enough to not always try to just do everything himself. But he has the right people in the right positions. So everybody that, you know, works for him has faith that that guy's going to make the right calls at the right time, for the most part of what I can see from the outside looking in. I don't work for the guy. I don't work for any of his companies. But again, that's something I teach my kids because it's a good trait to have. And it's a very obviously a good trait that will lead to success when if you realize that you need help or you may not be an expert on something, that you get the right people in there to um, you know, uh, lead those specific areas. And you know, you maintain leadership, but you also yield a little bit to those people and say, all right, you have this good. All right. I'll come and check in with you at this time. He, um, you know, again, I'm not sitting here trying to praise Elon Musk, but I'll relate it to this way in the kingdom of God. God has his people. God has his leaders. God has his elders in the church. God puts us where he wants us in his body. So um, have faith in the leadership that God puts you under. Always do your homework. Always do your due diligence. But if you, you know, feel comfortable and you know and you feel peace in your spirit that God's put you somewhere, engage with the leadership. Let your heart be knit with those people. Get involved with your church. Get involved with what God's doing where you are in the part of the body that you're in. And, um, you know, have confidence. Trust me, <laughs> Jesus knows what he's doing. His church is his church. And, um, you know, uh, you you will definitely be in good hands when you are in the right place that God puts you into. And um, you'll know it. Your spirit will know it. And you will know it because one way you can always tell is make sure that they preach and teach directly out of the word of God. They have a harmonized view, a biblical worldview of what is, you know, going on and how things are going in the world. And um, you can always do, this is why it's so important to know the word yourself is because you can always test anything that's being taught simply by knowing the word of God. So it's that easy, literally. Um, I know a lot of people walking around that are deceived. A lot of um, liberal Christians, a lot of progressive Christians, a lot of people that have gone to seminaries that are frankly clueless when it comes to spiritual things. But they have a lot of uh, they have a couple letters on after their name, so they think they're special. But you know, unfortunately, their lives definitely don't reflect what is described in the Bible as a Christian. That's for sure. So, um, but I don't want to end on a negative note. That's going to conclude our look at Exodus twenty-seven. That's uh. Again, just a little instruction on the, the, the lampstand, um, the tabernacle, the burnt offerings, and um, 
you know, it's again, we're continuing our look at the law of Moses. So we will get into Exodus 28 in our next episode. But until then, God bless and have a great day.